0: Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall Guy.
1: That's what the poster said.
0: See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make out? Nope.
1: Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now.
0: What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read at PG
1: 13. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? Hi, I'm Grace, and I'm an indie vet. I'm also home from work at 6 and already transformed into a princess. Mommy, put on your crown! That's because I've got complete control of my schedule, plenty of shifts that fit my life, and a team like no other. It's a whole new way to vet. Indie vets.
0: Right, you know. belly up sports fam it is mr shocker cummings along with mr parker ainsworth welcome to f in sports the podcast with two teachers grade sports biggest issues parker how are you doing this fine
1: sunday afternoon I'm doing okay, Shaka. Grinding down the school year and kind of getting ready to head off to summer, as weird as that seems. It feels like in some ways it's been on summer for a while now, but it also feels like it'll be nice to not stare at a computer screen all day long every day for a few days. So how are you doing? I am well. I think you need some of those uh, blue blocker glasses, maybe, if you're staring at the screen (laughs) too
0: long. Uh, This is our final (laughs) week at school, so I'm feeling great, feeling like we got a lot accomplished, all things considered. But, uh, yeah, digital school is definitely different. Make sure that, if you haven't already, go out and thank a teacher because that stuff was hard, man. It was not easy at all. Uh, Mr. Ainsworth, gold stars and detentions.
1: It's time to run with those. You got a gold star for us this week? Uh, yeah, my gold star is going to go to a couple different sporting events, one of which is more mainstream and one of which is more American. Uh, First of all, gold stars to the Bundesliga and the Cornhole Championships both were uh, play- <laughs> actually playing live sports yesterday. Uh, Bundesliga played European soccer in Germany. That's the like top end German league, right? They played all day yesterday on Fox Sports 1 if you were tuning in. But they played with no fans. And it was really interesting to see kind of how that would realistically play out and like what that would look like. I got to say, it was a different vibe. Like... You saw teams running over to like the crazy section they'd always you know celebrate in front of like at the end of a win or whatever, and um, the fans are not there, but they're still going through that like rig- like ritual. Uh, it, it was it was weird and different, but it, it kind of shed some light on what sports could look like here if that's where the United States ends up going. And then uh, you know hats off to cornhole on ESPN yesterday because I certainly <laughs> watched way more cornhole than I thought. So I, thought I have I watched
0: more cornhole on television in the last two weeks than I have. In the previous 39 <laughs> years of my existence. So <laughs> it's actually interesting. Like, I guess it's because I've played it. So I look at it and I'm like, oh, can I do that? No, you can't do that. There's absolutely no way. <laughs> um, my gold star goes to global mega corporation Google. And we shouldn't probably give too many gold stars to the global mega corporations that are dominating our lives. But Google, this is very personal to me. To this week, I bought a Google Stadia controller. I now have access to Google Stadia video games. I have been playing the GM mode on 2K20. I've been playing <laughs> Samurai Showdown, and I have been entertained as much as Russell Crowe could ask. If I've been entertained, I have been entertained. Thank you, Google. So um, oh, I've
1: got to I've got to ask if you've been playing GM mode on NBA 2K. Who does that mean you are, and are you taking over a certain franchise that I assume you're taking over? Absolutely. I am the Knicks, and the <laughs> Knicks are actually being run competently. I am, I am
0: in my fourth season as the GM. In the first season, the Knicks were the Knicks, and then we made the playoffs in my second season. We won a playoff series in my third season, and right now we have a starting lineup that consists of Steph Curry, uh, Donovan Mitchell, <laughs> uh, Gordon Hayward, um, I forget who my power forward is, and then a kid who I drafted with the first, oh no, the second pick overall in the draft after craftfully working out a trade with the Orlando Magic.
1: So oh we're doing we're doing, <laughs> we're doing fine. We're doing fine.
0: We're doing fine. So
1: go. you've got an All Star starting five in just three years. Is what you're saying? So the Knicks are only three years away. Pretty much. Just put me in charge, guys. <laughs> go New York. Go New York. Go. Um, <laughs> what detentions do you have, Parker? Um, I have one detention to hand out to four different people, um, the NFL's Cody Latimer, DeAndre Baker, Quentin Dunbar, and most recently, as of in the last 24 hours as of when we're recording this, Ed Oliver, um, were all arrested at different points this week. Any athlete or celebrity out there in the world, we are all sitting here in pandemic, staring at our computers and phones for lots of hours of the day. There is nothing else going on. If you do something worth getting arrested for, it is all anyone's going to be able to see. <laughs> this is dumb. There's there's no way to sweep yourself under the rug right here, guys. Even if you're like DeAndre Baker and Quentin Dunbar and are very quickly coming up with alibis and reasons you weren't where they say you were and so on. Blah, 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 blah. Guess what we had on the news for two days straight. There was nothing else to talk about besides you getting arrested. So, guys, take care of yourselves and stay out of trouble. I don't care how bogus that stuff is or isn't stay out of trouble It's all we're looking at no it's crazy because that
0: is not the reason why you want your mom to see you trending on twitter um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough deal uh my my detention it goes to oj simpson and the reason why is because oj simpson has a twitter account and i don't know why he keeps coming up on my timeline i don't know who i'm following that's following oj but like oj has given us like this positive spin on the fact that the pandemic is starting to end and things are starting to open up and I'm like I don't need that from you like I'll take <laughs> I'll take the positive from a lot of people I don't need it from orenthal james i'll take it from some other different sources so yeah uh detention to oj can we just get him off my twitter timeline i'm going to figure out who that is and i might shoot you a dm uh with that (laughs) (laughs) with that being said uh we have a full show we're going to talk a little bit of the last dance we're going to talk about blake snell and some comments that he's made about the global pandemic and baseball coming back, and then we will wrap with the discussion of the Power Five and whether or not it's to their advantage to stay with the rest of the NCAA. And so, without further ado, Mr. Ainsworth, are you ready to go, sir? Ready when you are, Shaka. Okay, Mr. Ainsworth, we have our first segment of the week. We're going to be talking about Michael Jordan and the last dance. The thesis statement this week. The documentary, The Last Dance, changes the perception of Michael Jordan. Mr. Ainsworth, what do you say to that thesis statement?
1: Oh, because I waffle on things back and forth with the thesis, I probably end up settling at a B. I have some parts of it I really like, some parts of it I really don't like. I'm going to settle at a B, I think. What are you graded as, Shaka? Based on
0: the things that I'm reading on Twitter in terms of folks' perception— I'm gonna give that like a D. So that's where I'm gonna go. Okay, Mr. Rainsworth, the thesis statement, the documentary, The Last Dance, changes the perception of Michael Jordan. You gave that a B. Talk to me about that.
1: Well, you get, and I, I wanna start off by saying you gave it a D, and there's certainly parts of it that I would also give a D. The deal is I gave it a B because there are also parts of it I would give an A, and so I settled somewhere in the middle there. It doesn't change my perception a whole lot. I, I know, I, you know, anyone who's, not, who's listened to this have not listened before, I was born in 1991. So, like, my earliest basketball memories as far as like actually paying attention to the game is, like, the end of the 98 season, kind of. And honestly, even then, it's kind of loosely paying attention, right? There's not a whole lot of paying attention to sports for me until more like the 2000 finals that's not to say that like i don't remember like my dad throwing a party when the rockets won in 95 but i was 40, so i, remember the <laughs> I party knew that was going like, to make
0: its way into the podcast
1: <laughs> <laughs> i also am a history teacher enjoy reading old boring history books and things like that and actually have done a lot of like in my own personal life reading about michael jordan i think he's fascinating And so it didn't change a lot of my perception because it was cool to see it on screen, but a lot of the actual stories were things that I already knew. It it wasn't necessarily like it was, you know, maybe cool to see Jordan say it, but it wasn't actually a story I hadn't heard before a lot of the time. I do think that there's an entire set of sports fans that are 30 and under like myself that maybe doesn't enjoy reading history books in their spare time that is learning a lot of these stories, right? They're learning that he gets, they might've heard he got cut from the team, as varsity team as a sophomore in high school, but they didn't know that it took some people sneaking him into five-star basketball camp after his junior high school to get a scholarship to North Carolina, right? They maybe have heard that he hits the game winner as a freshman in North Carolina. They don't have any idea how much he dominates the next two years of college basketball, right? They maybe have heard a lot of these different aspects, but haven't heard as much detail as the documentaries offered even though the information's been out there right um, it's cool to, and that's all to say that reading it and seeing it on screen is very different ESPN has done a great job with the documentary as far as the visual Absolutely. and the way they combine the hip-hop tracks from the time with the video has been great yes um, yes the music yes. is great 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 so I, I want to give it for the people under 30 like that though I want to give it a higher grade because I think for the you know millennials like myself or for people in gen z right the, the younger people that are like well lebron's the best or because da, 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 they never saw any of this or never watched the stories or, or whatever um or like that argue that jordan played against a bunch of plumbers uh, like obviously <laughs> people get bigger stronger faster as time goes on and i don't mean to say that the human race like devolves at some point right maybe psychologically, but certainly not physically. Uh, I, I would argue that <laughs> athletes are bigger, stronger, faster now and Bronze playing against bigger, stronger guys and whatever. But they certainly weren't scrubs, right? That's like looking at assuming that the 2010 Dallas or 2011 Dallas Mavericks that beat the Heat were scrubs because when you look at them, they don't look particularly menacing, but they beat the Heat. So if that team, you know, like we could look at all these teams if you didn't know anything about the guys on them in a very similar way. Um, And I think it's done a good job of kind of nixing a lot of those. So I guess my B range grade comes from, it's not necessarily a whole lot more insight for a guy like myself that likes studying the stuff anyways. I can't imagine, and I want to hear from you in a second, a guy like yourself who lived it and watched it on TV, I can't imagine it's a whole lot of new stuff either. But I think it's important when you factor in the perception of the people it's supposed to be impacting, I'm sure has changed some, right? Because There are plenty of people that are learning throughout this, even if they're not myself. So here's
0: my take on it. And I think that you really hit it on the head with a lot of the things that you mentioned. But I do have a major point of contention. So people who are my age and I'm about to turn 40 years old, I've rooted for the Knicks. So I lived through Michael Jordan breaking my heart. All the way through over middle and high and school.
1: Over and over and
0: over. Uh, I, listen, I still don't like saying his name. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, so I lived through that. And so I knew the type of animal that that was. Like Michael Jordan cared about winning as much as any human being that's ever lived on this planet. You know, this This isn't Michael Jordan, but I watched a documentary once and it was on John Gotti. And it said that John Gotti was so addicted to competition that he was wiretapped betting on two cockroaches racing up a wall. And it's like, the only reason why he didn't bet Michael Jordan is because Jordan was in that space. Jordan would have had a piece of that action. Like, that's who Michael Jordan was. He loved the competition. And not only Completely. the competition, he loved winning, right? He wanted to right. beat you as much as anyone ever want to be anyone and so this documentary doesn't change that for me i knew that uh i I remember hearing the stories of he and patrick ewan going out to dinner and then jordan dropping a double nickel in the garden like i remember those stories as if they were yesterday so i think that for folks my age the perception of michael jordan it's already been formed and so what you're getting are some nuanced pieces around uh, the stories behind that perception. But I don't know that it's changing for anyone of my ilk, anyone who's, you know, uh, 35 or older. Then you start looking at uh, the folks who are younger. And this is where I'm thinking that, I don't know if this documentary is actually doing a ton to change. It just depends on the generation, I guess. So maybe folks who are, you know, younger millennials, Generation Z, may, maybe they already kind of thought that Michael Jordan was the greatest or they think that lebron is the greatest i don't know if this documentary is necessarily changing their mind based on the discussions that i'm seeing on twitter or based on those arguments because it seems like what this documentary has done is it's brought these people out of the woodwork who are like in crazy ways trying to dissuade you from believing that this guy was great in order to prove that this other guy is great Listen, LeBron James can be awesome, and Kobe can be awesome, and Shaq can be awesome, and Wilt can be awesome, and Kareem can be awesome. Like, everyone can be awesome. To tell me that Jordan wasn't as good so that you could prop up LeBron is ludicrous. That just means that you don't understand Michael Jordan. And so to see these things on Twitter and social media, where folks are trying to knock Jordan because of his three-point shooting percentage, or they're trying to knock Jordan because it took him six years to win his first championship, or because... You know, they look at, as you mentioned, teams in the 80s, and they're like, well, Jordan could beat those guys? He must not have been that good. And it's like, yeah, those teams that he couldn't beat had Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and Isaiah Thomas. Like, you just got to understand the history of the league. And so to see these arguments just devolve into, listen, I always thought LeBron was better, and now this is only proving to me that it is, means that you're looking at this, and I don't know that it's moving the perception, which is why I went to a D. I'm just going off of what I'm Reading, at least across most of my social media, it feels like folks who are my age or older already kind of thought Jordan was the best. So we're just arguing that. And then depending upon where you were as Generation Z or earlier millennial or even like the teenagers who are who are on Twitter who are arguing, if you thought LeBron was better, this isn't moving you. You're just trying to pick pieces from the documentary to prove your point. Which to me, I know that that's a debate fallacy, but but to right. me, it's just it feels weird that people would kind of do it that way.
1: Well, and I'm not saying that it's necessarily changing people's ranking or who goes on the Mount Rushmore as much as it's making it like, oh, Jordan was different. And I think that there are people admitting that Jordan was obsessed with winning. And I I think that there was a a younger generation again, speaking as the under thirty in the room. I think that there were people under thirty that didn't get that the wanting to win part was different the he's playing in every different card game along the plane from chicago to la because he wants to get everyone's money in his wallet he doesn't really care how much money you're betting on the hand of cards he wants your money in his wallet regardless of if it's a one dollar bill or a hundred dollar bill right he wants it because it's yours he wants to compete with the quarters against the wall with the famous the now famous uh Wajnack guy security guard right he like he wants to win all of those things the one part that I also think, though, has been interesting about the documentary has been probably the strongest. The clip on Twitter is about a minute and a half, but I really thought the full two and a half minutes to end episode It is seven, It is
0: literally the best two and a half minutes of the entire 10-hour documentary. Well, and
1: so my takeaway from that, I thought about this a lot. I've texted back and forth with friends, but oh my God, how good was that two and a half minutes? The minute and a half that gets has gotten clipped has been a lot more focused on Jordan trying to focus on winning right like that's like that like he can't stop focused on focus on winning the full of minutes actually starts earlier and he's like talking about how people may think he's a bleephole But the truth is he didn't ask anyone to do anything. He wasn't willing to do himself He was going to win at all costs and he was only asking people to do that with him. He then goes into how that's all. The only way he knew how to do things that work was to push everyone to the limit, to where that all that they would do was win. Right? He put that pressure on his teammates and practices by yelling and antagonizing them because he knew when they went to play your next the Garden that Spike Lee was gonna be in the front row doing the same thing, and so he's Damn gonna right do that too. And while it may tr- make him come off like a bleep pole in practice, it made them ready. Right? It made all those guys ready. It made Pippin and Rodman, and Steve Kerr, and John Pax, it made those dudes ready for war. And he ends it emotionally, talking about how you may not like it, or you may do it differently, but that's the only way I knew how to do it. And then as, like, emotionally, it says break. Like, he needs to step away from the camera for a second. That is the the depiction there. And, like, I, I've gone back and forth with my friend over this. It's almost like a guy with addiction problems. Like, it's almost like he he was addicted to winning. He was addicted to pushing to the absolute end of the earth limit to win it all caused. He's like, I don't know anything else besides this. I can't shake this. This isn't like, it might not be normal. It might not be natural. It might not be what the rest of you do, but it's the only thing I can do. And that's honestly like in a weird way, triggering to a lot of different like addictions to other things. Right. But his addiction and his vice was winning. And I also think it's interesting to think about like his vice is winning and he very clearly just, picked basketball because that was the thing he found the easiest to do it with right he was going to be have that vice of i need to win at all cost whether it was cards or craps or baseball or whatever it was right he was going to want to win like that whatever he chose
0: yeah i would actually argue that he didn't just pick basketball right because if you look at the way that he played golf the way that he gambled like it really and i love what you said it's an addiction to winning Jordan in the documentary actually says that he feels like he's addicted to competition and I would actually push back on that it's not just competition like he doesn't want to just do it to compete he has to win at the deal which is why you hear the stories of him going to casinos and staying at a casino for four hours because in the first hour he was running bad and it took him you know two more hours to kind of get steady and then that fourth hour is when he starts finally turning it around and it's like okay now I'm winning so I can walk away you know what I mean and so that's really what, what I think that it is as well. That's one of the takeaways from the documentary. To go back to some of the uh, pieces that you mentioned, you know, one of the things that Jordan talks about in that two and a half minutes as well is that, you know, there were guys on the team that were reveling in the six championships that didn't go through all the things that Michael Jordan went through. So when Jordan talks about, hey, this is the way we have to do it, you guys didn't go through me basically missing my whole second season or me for, you know, years. Them telling me that I couldn't win after I averaged 37 points a game in my third season, made it to made it to the playoffs, and we got knocked out in back-to-back first rounds. And people are like, well, you can't do anything but score. You can't win. Like, you guys didn't go through all that. You guys didn't go through the Jordan rules. So, like, yeah, this is how I feel like I have to do it. This is my natural response. And if you don't like it, you don't have to play this way. But – this is how i play and this is what i'm going to demand of you and i'm not going to just demand it of you and then not give it of myself which is such an incredible perspective to hear from him now again those of us who live through michael jordan yeah that's not a surprise to us because that's the dude we saw all the time like the dude who they could be down 10 in the fourth quarter and he was just gonna find a way the moment in the documentary where Doug Collins is talking about his debut as the head coach of the Bulls, and they're down to Milwaukee, I believe it was, going into the fourth quarter, and Michael Jordan's like, "Don't worry, coach, I'm not going to let you lose your debut." And then Jordan just takes the game over in the fourth quarter. This is like these. Yeah. This is who he was, and so I don't know that the perception necessarily has changed for us. And I guess where I go back to with the pieces that I'm hearing on social media is that I guess if you already had that perception of this is who Michael Jordan was, then this is cementing that for you. But then there's a lot of people that are critiquing Michael Jordan for this. And so I guess to those people, he was just, you know, the dude who sold sneakers and he was on Space Jam. And it's like, well, that's who Michael Jordan is. And because they believe that that's who he was, now they're seeing this other side. And it's like, okay, no, you can't even leave that way in today's NBA. Like to hear a guy like Channing Frye say that Michael Jordan was just a scorer, and that was really his only responsibility, and, you know, it would be very different for him to play in this NBA. It's like, are you out of your mind? Like, man, you're an NBA player. You should know better than to say things like that. And then to kind of see... Other folks harping on pieces like that. Oh, The way that he leads, he couldn't lead a team the way that LeBron leads today because people wouldn't respond to him. And it's like he was a force of nature. Of course he could lead today. If he grew up going through the things that we all go through today, it probably would change his perspective a little bit and then he would still find a way because he's addicted to winning. And someone who's addicted to winning and can influence winning, it feels like, of course, he would find a way even in the modern NBA. You know, if you believe that, that you believe it, and this documentary only cements it for you. But if you didn't believe that, I think that people look in this documentary and they're trying to nitpick at the legend that is Michael Jordan, which is a weird thing to me. I don't know why that I would feel occur. Like
1: so much of that nitpicking, though, is happening. You know, a few morning talk shows a week, and people are really finding the the Channing Frye's, the world. And I think Channing Frye's post was on Instagram, right? And I, you know, Kendrick Perkins has gotten a lot of you know hatred because. People forget he played with LeBron, he's pretty biased in this, but he's been very much opening up, you know, Monday morning get up every week talking about how LeBron's still whatever, right? Where you see the perspective changing. And maybe this is my own addiction to like live tweeting sports and things like that. But if you have Twitter going while the documentary itself is going, the flood of just people that have played for the last twenty years, kids being retweeted by major like the flood during the two the two hours has been remarkable each week, and I guess that's what's shaping my. It's working on some level if the if that flood is happening, and maybe you could look at the rest of the week and say, well, the other six days of the week it's you know counterbalancing that, and maybe that maybe that's a miss you know a, a bad ratio in my head and a misrepresentation, but I don't know that when there's that much consensus for that a two hour span. We certainly don't have that much consensus for a two hour span, even in the. Last two hours of LeBron winning Game Seven, 2016 Finals, right? Like, like as great as that was, a moment for both his career and basketball, and how it changed somewhat Da 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 da. There was not, I don't think, that much consensus in that two hours. There was still like this, like, well, he just got lucky because Raymond got suspended in Game Five. Like, like there was still that going on, you know. And so, I guess because there's a lack of that in that two-hour window is what I'm focused on.
0: Yeah. I I don't know. I think that the people who are live tweeting are the ones who, again, kind of believe that that's who he was. And so for them, you know, it's confirmation bias.
1: So I don't know. That's just kind of how I come down on it. Okay, Mr. Cummings, thesis number two on the day. Blake Snell should not use the global pandemic to argue about money. How do you grade that one?
0: I'm going to give that a hard F. What do you say, Mr. Ainsworth?
1: I might be slightly kinder and understand the perspective and give it like a D minus, but I, I, I see his points, and so I'm not sure that that's a fair argument either. All right, Mr. Cummings, you gave it a hard F. Uh, without knowing what other things you give a hard F in your life, I'd like to hear why you gave that one a hard – why you gave <laughs> this thesis a hard F. So – I want everyone to understand that as
0: a teacher whose life has been turned quite a bit upside down by COVID-19, I can (laughs) empathize with perspectives of folks who look at COVID-19 and the adjustments that we've all had to make in our day-to-day lives. And to hear someone who doesn't necessarily kind of jump in with both feet at making an adjustment, In the COVID world, like when you hear that, I understand why that might rub you raw. And here's what I want folks to keep in mind when we consider what Blake Snell is saying. Blake Snell, Major League Baseball pitcher, uh, pretty darn good left-handed pitcher for the Tampa Rays. He is asked about the plan that Major League Baseball has put in place to come back from COVID and play a shortened season. So, according to ken rosenthal with the athletic here are the pieces that are outlined in the plan that were presented to players with regard to coming back and playing a shortened season thanks to coronavirus first the season would be shortened to about 80 games and it would begin in early july teams would only face division rivals or teams that are in the same geographic area so that way you can keep things regional in terms of travel teams would open the season in as many home ballparks as possible as long as they're open that being said obviously if corona is still making it so that you can't get access to your park then we won't use those stadiums the next part of the plan talks about an expanded postseason format where seven teams per league makes the playoffs and then they would basically try to figure out you know the rounds and the numbers but it's similar to an idea that was actually floated around in the offseason this year about adding another playoff team Uh, another piece was that a DH would actually be used in order to spare wear and tear on pitchers those pieces were given to players along with a piece around pay where the revenue split would be 50-50 which traditionally it's not in major league baseball because there's significantly more players so players tend to get a little more revenue now what folks have to understand is that major league baseball players were already asked to take a pay cut because games aren't being played right now the major league baseball players association already agreed to said pay cut so the piece that's being thrown in there is a piece for a second pay cut that the players would take and not only that but Everything that I've said to you, there's nothing in there that talks about the specifics around coronavirus testing and player safety with regard to this global pandemic. That's not to say that baseball isn't thinking about it, but baseball doesn't outline it here. So now Blake Snell is given this information and he's asked for his reaction. And his reaction is, hey, this doesn't sound like they're really thinking about player safety. And they want me to go out and take less money to go into an environment that I don't know is safe. And I'm not willing to do that. Like, no, I'm not going to take even less money than I'm already taking. I already took a pay cut to make this happen. So now the owners who are billionaires are going to come to me and say, I got to take less than what I'm already taking, which is already less than what you said you would pay me to go out into an environment where you didn't even figure out all the issues around safety. Like no, I'm not interested in doing that. Especially considering I'm a pitcher and that this shortened season I may not be as ready for as I normally would be and there's a potential that I could throw my arm out. Now I got to think about future down the road when the world is a little more normalized. Like yeah, I got to think about me, I got to think about my family and I got to think about my money. Chris Carter, former wide receiver <laughs> for the Minnesota Vikings. The two most important things in professional sports are me and my money. And so just because Blake Snell is a millionaire and we all, and most of us aren't just because we can't relate to exactly what his situation is. Just put yourself in that mindset. Imagine your boss coming to you, asking oh, you to see. take a pay cut in Corona, then saying <laughs> we're going to add another pay cut on top of it and go do this thing that we're not even sure is hundred percent safe. It's like, okay, I kind of get where Blake Snell is coming from.
1: See, you went to the zeros in his paycheck and said, it's unrelatable. I look at the, Predicament he's in, and think it's super relatable. I think about the idea that anyone, after already being forced into one pay cut because they can't go to work, is then going to get told, "Well, you can go to work, but it's going to be less work, more dangerous, and you're going to get paid a third or two thirds as much, whatever the final percentage comes out to be." Right? On top of the cut you already got, there isn't a person in America that's gonna be like, "Yeah, no, that sounds good." Like, there's like, <laughs> like that's not. That's, and I think it's interesting that we're all expecting this baseball player, because of the zeros at the end of his bank account, to just say yes, right? Like, oh, entertain us. Put yourself out there in danger and entertain the rest of us and play baseball in empty stadiums in this you know, this new system or whatever. Like, The other part about the thesis that no one's talking about here is everyone's saying Blake Snell shouldn't be using this global pandemic to talk about he, he and his money. As you pointed out, Chris Carter considers he and his money the two most important things in the sport. But what no one's saying is that the owner shouldn't be using this to t- talk about money. They're the billionaires, right? If, if that billion, if those billions of dollars to your name are not going to be used as a cushion in a year like this, why do you have those billions of dollars? Like, well, like if, if you're not going to use those as some sort of a cushion, right, get rid of the billions of dollars. Like the, at some point, that cushion you've built up through your many business ventures over the course of your lifetime, is supposed to be a cushion for a time like this, right? I just think it's interesting that he he took a lot of the heat. I, you know, Bryce Harper came in and backed him a little bit, and ESPN liked to bag Bryce Harper, which I do not
0: get. I, I don't I, get why Bryce gets bashed all the time.
1: I enjoy jumping in on it because it's kind of fun and silly, but I don't really understand why either. Like, like I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what he did to deserve it. But like Bryce Harper got a little bit of flack for supporting Blake Snell, but truthfully, I I don't know. That there aren't a lot of baseball players just kind of quietly agreeing with them as well. Like, I I don't. (laughs) Some of
0: them aren't quiet. Nolan Arenado's not quiet. Trevor Bauer's not quiet. Those guys are coming out and saying, hey, listen, what Blake Snell is saying are the same things that we've been saying. Like, Trevor Bauer's been saying this for at least a month that I've heard him speak and he's a guy who talks a lot and he plays for Cincinnati and I live in Lexington. So like, I hear him a lot. I um, mean, he's been, <laughs> he's been talking about this quite a bit saying this Blake Snell is basically bringing up these issues that we brought to our Players association. Our Players associations bring bringing to ownership and ownership's not responding in any meaningful way. They're saying, Oh, we'll take care of coronavirus testing. And then we don't hear details about it, but now you want us to take a second pay cut. Like, I don't understand. Like, So um, I listened to Katie Nolan's podcast as well, which is a great listen if you guys don't listen to it. And one of the things that she says is, I think that people who make significant money are more than willing to, in times like this, take a pay cut, as long as they understand like where the pay cut's going. So in other words, you know, if someone came to, she says this specific example, someone came to me, Katie Nolan, and say, hey, would you take a pay cut during this time? And she'd be like, Well, yeah, I'll do that as long as you don't fire my staff because then I know my pay cut is going to support them and keep their job.
1: Right. Like, this
0: is the deal with Blake Snell. Blake Snells, like, okay, so I get it. There's no fans in the stands. There's fewer games. So we're just taking these pay cuts, taking these pay cuts, taking these pay cuts. Are you taking a pay cut? Like, what? Show me the ownership revenue because the owners keep that, they keep those numbers hidden and we only estimate these things no one really knows what those things are so give us the data to show us that you're taking the hit too like that we're all in this together are we all in this together or are you just trying to find a way to keep as much of your money as possible and we got to bear it on our backs and we're the ones who are going to go out there like you as an owner might not even fly to some of these games or go to any of these places to make sure that things are going on so now we're the ones putting ourselves at risk going back to our families going back to our kids and the, the research on Corona it's changing daily as to how dangerous this thing is. I don't know. Blake Snell, I, I kind of get him. Like, I kind of get exactly the perspective of where he's coming from. There's
1: also an aspect of this, too, that, you know, even if you got the disease and survived it, like, you know, many, many people do. And I don't, I don't mean to be to, like, downplay the danger of the virus at all, but there are a lot of people recovering from it. Right. And so I think Blake Snell is accurate to point out that even if he recovers from the disease as a normal person, As an athlete, the impact on your lungs and things like that, like this could change your entire life. Absolutely. And you need all of that. Like he makes his money on his body, right? At a very like raw sense of the phrase, his body being able to perform at a high level athletically is how he makes money. If he's going to put that in danger, he wants to at least be compensated. And I know that that sounds like ludicrous to the people that are losing, you know, a third of the country or whatever it is by the end of this month, they're going to be out of a job. And that's, that's unfortunate and crazy and like a situation that is not like the same. He's not saying that it's the same. He's saying he also, like, they don't have to both be one or the other, right? It doesn't have to be like, well, since a third of the country has their job, you to just take what we give you. You can be like, we want that third of the country back to work. And he also should get the money he's entitled to because he signed that contract. Like, both things can be accurate. And I, again, I think that Blake Snell and Bryce Harper
0: and Nolan Arenado, and I know Trevor Bauer, because this is what Trevor Bauer has said, if we're all sitting down at the table and we're talking about revenue and we're talking about the projections of revenue coming in and we're just trying to figure out who gets what normally. And then how do we kind of make it as normalized as possible? Then awesome. It's transparency. Let's all have the conversation, but that's not what we're doing. Like ownership isn't coming to the table and being transparent. So now we're just supposed to trust you. Why? Like, what, what, what have you done ever in the history of owning that says we should trust you? When have you ever said trust the owners? Like, I don't understand the perspective of sports fans. We do this thing where when it comes to labor disputes, we bash players and side with owners. So we bash millionaires to side with billionaires. And it's like, no, you know what? In this case, I'm not doing that. Sorry. I kind of get well, where he's coming from.
1: Completely. And I think it's interesting, you bring up a point that uh, a guy I listen to a lot, we're talking about Katie Nolan, I listen to Dan Ledtar, and he points out all the time how it's interesting that, you know, the mindset of the fan, because we associate the billionaire with the franchise, is that it's all of us fans versus millionaires, when the truth is, it's like you're saying, it's a billionaire versus a lot of millionaires, just like our jobs are a boss versus a lot of labor, right? Like, so much of us should be relating more closely to the player in all of these kind of disputes and every lockout and everything like that. Right. And for whatever reason, because we associate the sometimes faceless billionaire with the logo on the front of the Jersey, like with the literal laundry, we just assume that they're more like us because we have all that laundry, right? Like, and that's not really how it
0: works. Not at all. I mean, it's that, it's that sense of tribalism that comes with sport, right? Which is, you wear my colors, so you're my guy, right? It's right. <laughs> but he, that, And I, that didn't work out in South Central L.A. I don't know why all of a sudden it works out <laughs> you know, in <laughs> athletics during the
1: time of pandemic. Okay, Mr. Cummings, our last thesis statement of the day has to do with the NCAA and school as we wrap up school this year. Today's thesis is the Power Five, meaning the Big Five conferences in college sports, should break away from the rest of the NCAA
0: just so that everyone is really clear where I stand on this. This is F, as hard an F as I could possibly give. Now, Mr. Ainsworth, I definitely left no wiggle room. (laughs) Do you agree?
1: What's what's your grade? (laughs) Oh, man, we're opposites on this. I I think I give that an A, and I think it's interesting because I actually have non-COVID reasons to give it an A. Um, But I I give that thesis an A. I think it is a different institution of sorts so we'll see how we'll see how the rest of the people in the audience feel ladies and gentlemen
0: let's get ready to
1: rumble (laughs) (laughs) okay mr cummings you gave the thesis not only your second hard f of the day you gave it the hardest f in your own words i believe that you've ever given what i gotta ask is why did you flunk this thesis so bad and why, why are you flunking everyone in sports? We have to have someone eligible to play, Shaka. Okay, eligibility. Didn't think about that. Maybe
0: maybe I could turn around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, so, so with this thesis statement, it's such a short-sighted thesis statement to say that the Power Five should just break away. The Power Five has independence in college football to have their playoff system and... They do involve those uh, other conferences that are in the FBS, the Football Bowl Subdivision, to a certain extent. But we kind of recognize that the Power Five and then Jack Swalbrick, who's the AD at Notre Dame, they really run the show. Like, we get it. And, okay, if you want to say football exclusively, then maybe I'm more willing to have the conversation. But the Power Five just breaks away from the NCAA. So what are we doing now? We're basketball, baseball, lacrosse, gymnastics, It's all fencing, bowling, it's all. We just break it away? Like, that's what we're doing? The NCAA manages all of the athletic programs that schools have and all those tournaments and all the conference stuff. So now when we say Power 5, break away, I don't know. Feels really short-sighted. Feels like we just forget that the NCAA has a role in 24 different collegiate sports and over... 1300 schools when you go from division one all the way to division three like they manage all of that so now if the power five is just going to break away okay do you have the infrastructure to ensure that for all of those sports that you can work as efficiently and as effectively as the NCAA does and let me say this I'm not the guy who's going to sit here and tell you that the NCAA is this great entity that does everything right that's not what I'm saying at all What i'm saying is is that when we start talking about things like new professional football leagues or a basketball league that's going to try to challenge the nba or something to that effect what we forget about is the infrastructure that these large organizations have built over decades centuries at this point with the ncaa like that infrastructure is incredibly important and while i recognize that the power five has revenue and influence they would have to figure out this infrastructure piece fairly quickly if they're going to consider breaking away which means that it probably needs a lot more forethought than just to say okay maybe around covid or corona that we're going to make that decision or even we're going to make that decision in the next couple of years like you it feels like something that would be way down the road if we want to have the football discussion i get it football is the revenue generator right football the top 25 football revenue-generating programs, according to Forbes magazine, made $1.5 billion, with a B, <laughs> dollars in right. profit on $2.7 billion in revenue. If the Power 5 breaks away, here's the question that I ask. What are they going to do with that $1.5 billion in profit? Because my understanding is, is that the biggest piece was to manage all of these other programs athletically that you have, okay if you're gonna take it and you're just gonna funnel it into that then i guess that that's okay but it feels like if you're not going to be a part of the ncaa and if you're not a part of the ncaa you i I don't understand why the power five teams would be allowed to play non-power five teams so like all of a sudden a school like byu is frozen out from this Like you're not gonna be able to play all these games you're gonna have to play within the power five it feels like one and a half billion dollars in profit is a lot of money to not kind of spread amongst all of your athletic programs to ensure that they're going to be playing at the same level that they were playing before. You're going to give some of that money to the players? Because if you're going to give some of that money to the players, then I might be for this a little bit more. But I get the feeling that that's not what's going to happen. Like, we just look at those revenue m- numbers, and we're like, oh, they can could, they could do this on their own based on the revenue that they generate. And it's like, Okay. As long as that money's coming back to student athletes, then let's have the conversation. But this is like the baseball conversation that we just had before. Like, there's not enough transparency for me to just trust, in this case, the college presidents and the athletic directors who would represent ownership versus these players who don't generate, who they generate the revenue but don't make any of it. And that's kind of where I come down on it. I think that it's folks... Maybe being a little bit short sighted, like forgetting that the NCAA puts on this basketball tournament that generates a billion and a half dollars in revenue. And if you are the power five, you break away from the NCAA. Okay, March Madness doesn't look the way that it looks. Okay, yeah. So but- now we're just going to go ahead and say, yep, yeah, we're just good. We're going to break away and we're just going to allow all that money
1: to just go away because of football.
0: I'm just asking the question.
1: No, they're not, it's not going away. It's going to different people. I think part of my agreeing with the thesis and why I gave it an A is I I really think that what we're seeing in college sports anyway, is those power five have taken control of the NCAA anyway. I think that what you're watching is things like California passing the image and likeness law recently, right? And all of a sudden, the NCAA has to kind of react and be like, well, I guess we just have to let that thing go, right? It's, or, or they have to find some way to work around that. And, they didn't work around that in reaction to san diego state allowing people to make money off their image and likeness it's about usc it's about ucla it's about stanford it's about cal right like it's about the big power five programs there in california the truth is as you say the power five conferences would need that ncaa tournament I think that NCAA tournament needs the Carolinas, the Dukes, the Kentuckys. I think they need those schools and those Power Five programs way more than we if we just watched a big tournament of great college basketball teams. You, you brought up a, a good point, I thought, in talking about like this would kind of ice out a team like a BYU. But like 15 years ago, Utah would have been that team as well, right? They're, what was it, 07? What year did they beat Alabama in the, in the Sugar Bowl, right? And they weren't a Power Five team yet those teams, I think, would slowly ease their, I mean, not, in, not in the initial push, but probably be more likely, those schools, to be like, oh, we're making money, we're growing, we've dominated what's left at the NCAA for a while, it's time for us to make the jump to this, whatever the Power Fives become. I think the NCAA needs the Power Fives way more than vice versa, and I just, I got this this inkling that, you're talking about all this money being made by those schools, the only reason that amateur laws exist or amateurism exists as far as eligibility goes is because of the play right like the schools are not they can easily make the incident play the bad guy and maybe they would just make whatever the new power five organization the organizationally the bad guy as well i just i think that the idea that the incident has been around for so long and that like oh the schools need it i think that's its own level of short sightedness because the truth is the way that the money has grown in those power five programs the NCAA needs that as bad, if not worse, right? I don't like that this is coming up in the background of COVID, right? Because COVID is shaping it. Well, like, well, if the NCAA is not going to play. We're still going to find a way to have SEC football. We're still going to, like, that's not necessarily where my agreeing with the thesis comes in. And I, I do want to point out that that feels a little icky. Like, if NCAA is saying, as academic institutions, we can't allow whatever to happen this fall, it certainly seems awkward that the Power Five would find a way around that by creating their own thing. And so it's not necessarily that aspect of the thesis I agree with, but I do agree that the Power Five, those five conferences could pull out and make their own thing and leave the NCAA kind of high and dry.
0: I guess I don't want to come off as someone who is saying that the Power Five needs the NCAA like exclusively as if this is not a reciprocal relationship. So if that was the ...notion that folks got from what I said, then that's not what I meant. What I meant is that the NCAA and the Power Five work well together. They need each other. So if the NCAA were to not exist and the Power Five conferences had to now agree on the structures for things like tournaments at a national level then I think that it's a lot more difficult to do because you don't have one entity governing how these things are put together, where the locations are, managing all those administrative pieces. So the Power Five benefits from having this organization that exists in order to ensure that all these infrastructural pieces are in place. So the Power Five and the NCAA need each other. If the Power Five wants to break away, then it's not something that they can do quickly because of, pandemic it's something that would take years and years of really understanding exactly all the pieces that are going to impact students and athletes and then figuring out how we're going to address all those pieces so to me it doesn't feel like something that can happen very quickly by the way the genesis of this thesis statement comes from an article that was uh, published by espn and it was published may 5th where a i believe it was a provost from the university of minnesota said that uh, the power five could quickly come together and kind of pull this thing off and it's just like I hard pass on that dude like I don't believe that at all you, you made a lot of points so I just want to go back and circle back to some of those and some of the contentions that I have you talked about the name image and likeness really being about the power five schools like in a state like, like California and what I would argue is it's actually the other way around. It's actually not about the power of five schools. The reality is, is that UCLA and Stanford and USC get recruits anyway. The fear is, is that a state, the state of Alabama isn't passing a name image likeness rule. And now all of a sudden, the dude who Alabama normally gets has San Diego State on their list of schools. And it's like, where where'd that come from? Well, I can go out to California and do name image likeness So that's why San Diego State's on my list. And now all of a sudden, Alabama's losing recruits to schools that they would never lose recruits to before because California has a different set of rules than everyone else. So what I would argue is that the name, image, likeness actually works the opposite. I would also say that when it comes to the NCAA tournament, I fully recognize that you need the power 5 right you need Kentucky you need Duke you need Kansas so I'm not saying that you don't need those schools what I'm saying is is that the structure of the NCAA tournament the basketball tournament that generates 1.1 billion dollars like that's all about this idea that 68 teams are in the tournament And 68 teams are in the tournament because we have 350 schools in Division I basketball. Those are more than just five conferences, obviously. And so you get UMBC beating Virginia because UMBC is in the tournament. And they're in the tournament because the tournament, again, is structured around everyone, not just the Power Five. And so if we look at what the NCAA tournament is and the excitement that comes with the opening weekend and those first two rounds of the tournament, that's because everyone's a part of it. And again, if the Power 5 breaks away, I don't know that that's what the tournament ends up looking like. Like is it just going to be the teams that are in the Power 5 that participate? Do they all just get in? Like I don't they would have to think about those structures. And then the last piece that I wanted to point out was just this idea of uh, amateurism existing because of the NCAA. And I just, I don't know, there's a certain naivete to me in in that belief, if if that's truly what you believe. And maybe you meant it a little bit differently, Parker, but I don't think that the NCAA invented amateurism all by themselves. I'm pretty sure that the schools were like, hey, yeah, this idea of, of student-athlete and amateurism and making sure that when we get the billions of dollars in revenue from these different tournaments and things, that we could keep all that ourselves because these guys are amateurs. Like that benefited everyone. So it benefited the Power Five schools as well, which means that, again, I'm not sitting here saying I trust those schools to do what's in the best interest of student athletes now when they're controlling the revenue outside of this entity that is the NCAA. And I already didn't trust the NCAA to necessarily kind of manage it well. There's a lot more difficult answers to some pretty nuanced questions that
1: I don't know that we could address in any sort of short order. No, but the NCAA, so in working in reverse a little bit, the NCAA is the organization that's the longest history of suppressing that right of suppressing the idea that athletes could get paid meanwhile these institutions in the power five are operating under super large booster contract we just saw this past week that zion reportedly was making money from reps and stuff while he was at duke if those programs are running on boosters paying already i have a hard time believing that there won't that they aren't necessarily like in favor of that happening you brought up the idea of like my my likeness point and i maybe i'm not being clear but california I would argue passes that because recruits are leaving California, and it's a way to keep them there. Now, the guy that was deciding between USC and Alabama was going to Alabama because it was SEC football, right? And that's the way, that's the way to go these days if you're trying to go pro. The likeness thing was pulling that kid back to USC, and I, I think that regardless of how you want to argue, we can do a different pod to a different day on how the image of likeness law would have worked out had it not been and da 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 and so on to go circular. Actually, there, we kind of already
0: it. did that podcast. Make sure you check out our whole catalog of pods. <laughs> I, I
1: meant more of a history lesson on it, but yeah, that's fine. Um, what I what I really mean by it though is that California passes it. It's got a handful of big time programs and a lot of big time athletes, and all of a sudden the NCAA reacts. And that was an example I was trying to bring up of how the NCAA reacts to the Power Five, right? And just to make sure it looked like a two way street to me. And I I guess what I see happening is that the Power Five would function better to me than NCAA would without them. Obviously, this means that everything is different. You alluded to, yes, the the NCAA basketball tournament would be a lot different without the idea of a little program knocking off a big program. But guess what? it's going to be different like like that's it's that's, oh, different is not always worse it is different um i also think that you could end up with a lot better basketball games and watching the majority of those 16 seeds getting blown out like i like there there's there's give and take there and i, I think that that's you know yeah but how many of those schools have different. made the
0: final 4 in the last few years too so like okay so we just lose butler and george Mason and virginia commonwealth and Okay, if you're just fine with losing those, then I guess that's okay. I'm oh, but you're a,
1: you're a Kentucky guy, like you you're, yeah, you're, you're a blue you're a I, blue blood guy. Yeah. You, you see as you see as many times as I do that these blue blood programs have one bad shooting day, and so then all of a sudden they're not a champion. Like there's other ways to orchestrate this. Yeah, Who but that's that's that? that's a part of what makes the tournament special, though, right? So now we're just saying
0: that we're going to lose that. It's not. Let me just say it's not the same if Wake Forest upsets Kentucky in the tournament. It's just not. It's special if UNC Greensboro does it. Like that's where it's special.
1: But what I'm saying is that different does not mean worse. Like it. Would yeah, be that's why we disagree. But... Different will be worse. That's what.
0: <laughs> no, I, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Friends, that is another episode of F in Sports. Of course, we start out very friendly, then we end up yelling at each other, and that's how podcasts <laughs> worked. Uh, Parker, would you go ahead and give them your
1: socials? If you'd like to also yell at me on the internet, uh, you can find me on Twitter (laughs) at at Painsworth512. That's at P-A-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H-512 on Twitter and Instagram. I also respond to our FN Sports Twitter. Uh, I use dash P-A and Shaka uses dash C-C if you're trying to differentiate which of us is who. Uh, But that's at FN Sports 2, F-I-N-S-P-O-R-T-S, the number two, all one word as well on Twitter. We also
0: have a podcast Instagram at F underscore n underscore sports. So you can interact with us there. Uh, my social media is all at Shaka Cummings. That's my Instagram. That is my Twitter at Shaka Cummings at C-H-A-K-A-C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S. And you can yell at me for like agreeing that the NCAA is actually good in some way. How the <laughs> hell did that happen? Um, okay. Thank you for listening to is sports this week we love it oh make sure you go out like subscribe share do all the stuff that helps out the podcast and please remember when it comes to sports don't flunk with us later guys